science fiction meets reality. Each week, we'll bring you a sensational sci-fi invention and showcase the number one nerds making it come true. Coming up in this week's show. <laughs> it's coming spikes to stop you pulling it out. Certain bacteria protect them from becoming a wasp body sack. Not only do ants explode, but they smell like curry. And now, your host, Marcus Martin. Yes, you know what that sound means. You're listening to Make It Soon, the podcast where science fiction meets reality. In this series, we're looking at some of the most iconic inventions from the world of sci-fi and meeting the incredible minds making them happen. I'm Marcus Martin, science fiction writer and author of the number one best-selling series, Convulsive. We've got an awesome show for you this week. We are talking space bugs, one of sci-fi's splattiest stomping grounds. As you're about to find out, what's going on in the real world will blow your mind. Joining me this week are two brilliant specimens of humankind. Flying, crawling and pupating onto the airwaves is insectologist extraordinaire Eleanor Drinkwater. Eleanor, welcome. Hello, lovely to be here. (laughs) It's so great to have you here. Insect extraordinaire. I'm going to put that on my bio, I think. I think you've more than live up to that hype. (laughs) Eleanor, your CV makes for some pretty globe-trotting reading because you've worked for the Bermudan government on their national shark plan, which in itself, I mean, just like, I would love to be carrying a briefcase. And you know, I was like, what's in there? It's like, oh, it's a national shark plan. Yeah, yeah, back up. Um, you've also, you've researched avian social networks at UCL, and you've studied human impacts on beetle communities in Honduras. And you're currently completing your biology PhD at the University of York. Yep. Can you give us a quick insight into what it is you're researching at the moment? So I study the personality of woodlice. And yeah, so, Wait, so, so back I up, back um, up. Woodlice yeah. have personalities? <laughs> what? I think they have they have fabulous personalities. They're just they're just such wonderful creatures. So yes, you get some who are bold and some who are shy and some who are friendly and some who are like, you know, perhaps a little bit more aggressive if you can be aggressive as a woodlouse. And uh, yeah, so, so, <laughs> yeah, so really trying throwing to kind of... your woodlousey weight around the place. <laughs> They've got a lot more going for them than people give them credit for. <laughs> well, this is crazy. Okay, because like uh, before I was doing this show, I was, I was talking to my dad about this. It's like, yeah, we're doing a show on bugs. And he was like, oh, are you going to talk about all the cricket burgers? Because people are getting really excited about eating insects. But now you've just told me they have personalities. I'm like, whoa, I feel conflicted about eating that real friendly little woodlouse. <laughs> That's true. I wouldn't eat woodlice because I'm a bit attached to them. However, I am a big fan of antimophagy. I think it is really, really, really cool. Like, because if you think about kind of sustainability and particularly water sustainability, it's really the way forwards, in my opinion. Eleanor, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. And oh, do you hear that, dear listener? It's the rumbling footsteps of this week's Bantasaurus Rex. Welcome to the show, Hayden Belfield. Or buzzing gadfly, <laughs> annoying biting Hayden Belfield. Hayden, you have one of the coolest and most terrifying job titles I've ever encountered. You're an artificial intelligence specialist at CESA, which is the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. At the risk of trivialising a meaty, meaty topic, are robots going to take over and ruin the world, yes or no? Uh, not in the next five minutes, so we've got you know time to have a lovely podcast recording. That's great. I just want to manage your expectations. This podcast recording is going to take much more than five minutes. So, <laughs> if you're getting that itch and you're just like, man, I really want to go play like Call of Duty, just say the robots are coming. You know, I'll know what you mean. Yeah. But in case your sci-fi credentials weren't enough, you're also an associate fellow at the Leverhulme Boffin Factory for Boffins. Or 
No, no, wait, sorry, I, no. I, I misread that. It's the Leverhulme Centre mm. for the Future of Intelligence. So pretty much the same thing. Yeah, that's right. It leaves me thinking I need to upgrade my job title. Writer. <laughs> you know, there's, there's I mean, the best-selling best 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 author. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good old job title. Um, you, know, you know, I, I should have I gone to you, the master of job titles. <laughs> How is the future of intelligence looking? Very good. Capabilities with artificial intelligence, machine learning, are getting better by the day. You know, we're able to do incredible things that we weren't able to do even a few years ago, like chess, Go, various things like that. Computers are the best in the world at them. And then it's actually helping our lives in like many useful ways. But of course, with any advance, there's always who could misuse it or it could go wrong in various ways. So that's what we spend most of our time doing, thinking about very scary ways that things could go wrong and trying to work out what we can do to stop that. Would you say your office is full of optimists? I think if you're not an optimist, you don't want to work there because it would be too, too, too depressing. Uh, you've got to wow. think like, oh, please, we can, we can figure things out. Nice. So, okay, yeah. well, I like that. Hey, on that optimistic note, we shall proceed. I think we're ready, yeah. guys. Eleanor Hayden, are you guys ready? Born ready. I'm quite scared. <laughs> I, um, this is the, the wrong time to mention it, but the bugs do scare me a little bit. Uh, and by a little bit, I mean a lot. <laughs> oh, this is so great. Talking about sci-fi depictions, my favorite is probably Starship Troopers, where they just say, kill them, kill them all, and then burn them with uh, napalm. I mean, that's not, that's not in that my view, but it's not a million miles from my view. So I'm... I'm looking forward to having my eyes opened during this, uh, during this recording. That's, that's yeah, incredible. I, Eleanor, how does that make you feel, hearing Hayden say that about your, what I would call colleagues? <laughs> Cut to the soul. But hopefully this will, this will be, this could be the start of something beautiful. You could come yeah. away from this with a whole new, a whole new perspective. Yeah. This, I, I'm sure this is just, uh, it's just prejudice and I need to overcome it. Uh, I've been yeah, scaring I'm, myself a lot. Yeah. Well, here, we're here to help you work through that fear and those preconceptions, Hayden. Um, and we've got a really fun video that you're going to be watching later to give us your live reaction on. I really can't wait. Uh, I've deliberately withheld the link Great. until now because I just want to, I want to hear it live. Um, Eleanor, do you have a favourite iconic sci-fi bug that springs to mind for you? Oh, yes, many, many. Um, I'd, I'd, say, I'd say, say my favourite one was probably District 9 with the prawns, because that's clearly a film all about how everyone should become an entomologist and love invertebrates. Mm. Um, <laughs> but also a big fan of... <laughs> Yeah, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. There was no sort of social justice, racial uh, commentary going on. It was actually all about people not following their true passions and becoming insectologists. <laughs> Oh dear. Yeah, but also also a big fan of General Grievous. I've been told that he isn't actually a cricket, he's a droid, but I'm still calling cricket. He, he's the one from Star Wars, right? Yeah, he's excellent. Yeah, I, I can see why you would think he was a cricket, because I'm pretty sure he has like a cane as well, and he kind of like limps around the place. Yeah. Uh, and he's just I mean, great. if I were to design a, a droid, I wouldn't give them a walking stick <laughs> if they were going into a battle context. So I can see why you yeah. thought maybe he's just an elderly cricket. That's legit. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And a hacking cough. He's got like a really <laughs> terrible COVID-19 cough to him. Actually, in fairness though, that is one of the more consistent things about Star Wars because they just love to give uh, semi-robotic <laughs> beings some sort of respiratory condition. Like Vader kicked yeah. it off with that asthma thing. Grievous yeah. has got a hacking cough. Uh, that's the end of the list. I'll be honest, it was a shorter trend than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> We're briefly straying from the world of sci-fi here into the world of action-adventure 
Come on, everyone. You can you can follow us on this classic journey because we're talking about Indiana Jones. And I don't know, you, you've, you've got a bit of a bee in your bonnet about this. What's the deal? I, I do. I do. Well, essentially, Indiana Jones does give some animals, some invertebrates, a bit of a bad rep. So, for example, tailless whip scorpions, they, they crop up all the time in Indiana Jones because allegedly they're scary. So they are, they kind of look like spiders and they're about the size of your hand and they've got these really long kind of whips that kind of dangle down in front of them. But actually, they're totally harmless and they're really gorgeous little creatures. But in the film, they make them look so scary. Um, and I feel like it's just giving them a bad rep. So I just have a, a quick question. Hayden, how many Indiana Jones films are there, roughly, do you think? Well, three real ones, and then four, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's one apocryphal <laughs> that should be cast out. Okay, brilliant. Well, Harrison Ford is still working, so at the time of recording, we can say there are at least seven Indiana Jones films, of which we are aware. And just, just you know, playing devil's advocate here, but Hayden, if, if you were to be a producer on the set of Indiana Jones and you're just like, right, guys, we need a scene with scorpions. Shall we use the real lethal venomous scorpions and just willy nearly put them all over the set? Because some insectologist has just tapped me on the shoulder and said those tailless whip ones that we've heard by the bucket load, they're actually pretty chill. What would, what would you do? It's been important to reflect the scientific consensus in your filmmaking. Wow. So you would send Harrison Ford to the slaughter. <laughs> he's had a good run, Harrison. Like, he's been in some yeah. great films. Yeah, hang on. He wouldn't have if you'd done that on the first Indiana Jones film. <laughs> you would have had a very short run of films. <laughs> I mean, mm. on the other hand, like actual scorpions, rather than tell us whip scorpions, they're, they're, they're pretty gorgeous too. So, so, so really they should have them like placed around the set, but have them whenever, you know, they come up to them instead of being terrified, you should be, oh, look, look at that really adorable scorpion and then move on. That's how it should have played out. You're right. <laughs> and, and what a gripper it would have been. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Excellent. So I think, well, given that we're all suddenly feeling the fear of the insect world coursing through our veins after Eleanor describing them as gorgeous cuties. Shall we move on to our first sci-fi link, which is Ridley Scott's classic Alien. Hayden, give us a quick download. What happened there? So you're just an ordinary blue collar person in the future on a ship. You're just doing your job. And what pops out at you but a face-hugging monster that clams onto your face and injects its spores inside your belly and then later bursts out in a gruesome way out of your chest. They killed seven stunt doubles by <laughs> bursting through their chest. Yeah that's, yeah, uh, yeah, that's alien. They should have used tailless whip aliens and then everyone would have been fine. Exactly. <laughs> Eleanor, how does Ridley Scott's alien link to... Parasitic wasps. This is one of those beautiful examples in which nature is even more horrible than fiction. There's so many of these amazing little creatures called parasitoids. Um, and they're kind of like a halfway house between parasites and predators in that they eat their prey while it's still alive. So, for example, you get certain species, and what they'll do is they will lay one egg in a caterpillar, for example. The egg will then clone itself as the embryo divides and can hatch out into like 2,000 individual maggots, which will then eat the caterpillar alive from the inside as it grows. Which is just amazing. For then they then bust through its skin and then they they leave and things. Um, but yeah, it's really amazing. It's amazing too how long the caterpillars stay alive for as well. It's incredible. Oh, that's amazing. Um, but but even 
Yeah, even more terrifying though, tarantula wasps. In my, they're another type of parasitoid wasp. And in my opinion, they are probably the scariest animal on the planet in that what they do is they find a tarantula, they will p- paralyze it with their sting, permanently paralyze it, but keep it alive, drag it into a hole where they will lay one egg on its abdomen. The egg will then turn into a little maggot, burrow into its abdomen, where it then will proceed to eat, like first of all, it's kind of blood and then the kind of non-essential organs before, to keep it alive as long as possible before it finally eats it essential organs and which causes it to die which is just so horrible in my opinion that's that's ab- absolutely disgusting awful. And, uh, grim. Awful. the fact that this little maggot knows what to eat and what to mm. leave and it's and it's kind of working yeah. its way around like do you do this when you get your dinner plate like i i always eat all <laughs> my vegetables first then I eat all the proteins <laughs> and then I save all like the greasy carbs to the end. I'm like, what a treat. And this this little maggot's doing yeah. the exact same thing. People are so terrified of like tarantulas, but actually what you should be terrified of are the tarantula wasps. They're just so much worse. Well, thank you, Eleanor. Now I am. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mission accomplished, I would say. Mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> Hayden, give us some hope. How do the humans fight the parasite in Alien? Uh, they fight them with all the things that I now want to do to my own body uh, <laughs> to get rid of this thought. <laughs> Flamethrowers, nets, electric prods. They try and blow it out into space. Yeah, this is all things that I do to my bed before I go to sleep every night. <laughs> so, Eleanor, um, that was quite an interesting list from Hayden. I'm just wondering, do tarantulas have any of those tricks up their sleeve if a parasitic wasp heads their way? So, I, I try and do quite a bit of reading to find this out and unfortunately most of the kind of anecdotal reports I found said no they always get eaten but um <laughs> but, so, <laughs> but, 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 but but then I, I but looking at other species other species so aphids are often parasitized and really interesting they have this amazing thing in which they found that certain bacteria inside the the aphids like that live kind of commensally in their in their gut actually protect them from from becoming a, a wasp uh Body sack, I guess. Uh, yeah, which, what, which is what a phrase! What a what a phrase! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, gonna not, that's not going to leave my mind for a long time. Yeah, but, but it's amazing because because the, the wasps can sense it too, so they kind of oh, come up and, they, no. and they, yeah, they can sense that they've got the wrong type of bacteria, and they're like, no, nope, we're going to leave this one alone. We're going to find one without the bacteria, which is incredible. Ooh. So I, I want whatever they've got. Though. I feel like aphids could sell that bacteria on the black market. <laughs> For pretty good prices. So, moving on from Ridley Scott, Hayden, what could be more gross than a wasp that lays eggs in a beetle or a tarantula? A fly that lays eggs in humans. Oh, they're so cute. Oh, they're no. really cute. They're really cute. Oh, oh, here we go. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, um, I think I oh, think you should no. give us a, a quick rundown here. How how do butterflies okay. reproduce? They're really amazing creatures. Really, they're very misunderstood. Um, and so 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 they have this incredible life cycle where where the adult will lay its eggs on something that blood sucks, like like a mosquito, and then the the, the larvae will drop off when the mosquito feeds and then the larvae will then penetrate the skin of whatever it's been feeding on um, and so it kind of like it burrows into your skin and it kind of leaves a little breathing hole for it to, to breathe out of and then it kind of develops under your skin for about five to ten days before the larvae then drops out of your skin where it will finish its life cycle in the in the ground it will kind of pupate what, before turning into a fire. Hang on, did you say <laughs> it yeah? has a breathing hole that sticks out of your skin? Like, like a snorkel? Yeah. Yeah, like a little oh. snowball. Yeah, it's, no. yeah, it's really funny. 
No, <laughs> that is so yeah, no. that is so rancid. The really tragic thing though is is the adult though when they emerge they don't have a proper digestive system so they only live as an adult for like a very short period of time before they die of starvation. So really it's a really tragic life cycle and we should. Well, hang on. Just... So they they come visit for several weeks, squander their time developing meaningful digestive organs. <laughs> they only have themselves to blame there. It's a classic a classic gap year story. A classic gap year story. <laughs> <laughs> You have to be very careful with the headbands on head torches um, because often they, they, they end up getting in there and so you end up with the bot flight larvae all around your head and a little oh. ring, which means that to get them out, to get them out, to get them out is pretty horrible as well, quite funny, but really funny. Oh, okay. How do you get them out? Oh, oh boy. So it's... Okay. So, so, so this is one of these things that when you're really bored in a, in a jungle camp, it's like makes a really great watching. Um, mm. the, uh, <laughs> well, the best way to do it is like you put like um, uh, like Vaseline over their breathing holes. So essentially, they die sadly. And uh, but then you have to uh, put like a plaster on to, to allow them to kind of like properly die and go a bit like gross. And then you have to like kind of squeeze them out a bit like oh. a kind of, um, which is kind of it's, it's, yeah, it's fun. To watch. You have to be quite careful though because if they like burst inside you, then actually you can get really really sick. So that is. So, so yeah, you have to have someone who knows what they're doing. Hayden, is there any similarity between nature and sci-fi here? With so I'm, I'm thinking particularly about Octavia E. Butler's 2005 bio horror novel Blood Child. Mm, there is. Before I, I say that though, I'm so glad that this is a podcast rather than a video <laughs> because my face is screwed up into a permanent convulsion of uh, disgust and horror. <laughs> Go easy on yourself, mate. At the end of the day, you're just a body sack for a wasp. <laughs> Marcus, presumably you want people to listen to this podcast, and so why are you creeping them out with this horror? Hey, I didn't say I want them to enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, uh, again, going back to the dinner plate analogy, there's a of dessert in this season, and this is some right. good dreams, okay? So this is your spinach, this is your rich yeah. iron tail. Yeah, munch it down. <laughs> So Bloodchild, at least Alien, it's like a workplace accident that this person ended up with the insect inside Honestly, it. that description of one of the most iconic sci-fi films ever, it make, you make it sound <laughs> like sort of Ridley walked and slipped across a floor that hadn't been properly mopped. Yeah. And then got a yeah, call from like no window fee lawyer. And the rest of the film yeah. is just basically her sitting opposite a reptilian predator and a lot of good work. That's correct. Call in the health and safety executive. They are the true heroes here. <laughs> so at least Alien is a one-off accident. It's not like all the people in that movie are being harvested and farmed. But that's exactly what's happening in Bloodchild. It has th this race called the Tlick who are farming us by making mainly men pregnant with their flesh-eating bugs that then pop out of them on an industrial scale. So that seems very, very similar to the bot flies. <laughs> Hey, Hayden, just returning to the bot fly, I've just post pasted a yeah. YouTube link there for you. Do you want to have a little click on that? Yeah. I'd love you to... Okay, let's just, this is what happened when a scientist <laughs> reared a bot fly on his arm. Oh. <laughs> oh. Why is it wriggling? <laughs> oh, it, 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 it never stops. Oh. 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 Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> <laughs> spikes to stop you pulling it out. Oh, that is. Oh, it's kind of like a mark of pride, though, to have had a, a bot fly among among the tropical researchers. The people who I know who've had them then keep them in, in jars and bring them to scare school children when they do school tours. Oh, um, so grim. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the video just said it takes forty-five minutes 
return oh. cash out of your. Oh. It's still this time the child. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Basically the same. Basically the same. <laughs> uh, I think that's an excellent, excellent summary there, isn't it? It's uh, two two men sit and watch a YouTube video about a forty-five minute fly hatching in camp. That is obviously the worst and most awful thing anyone could ever experience. <laughs> then it's just like. Um, there is that one other thing. This show is made possible by the generosity of listeners like your good self. This show is entirely self-made. Help us bring the next season fresh to your ears at Maximum Warp. Just head to makeitsoon.com slash donate. It literally only takes a moment to donate and it makes such a big difference. If you believe that this show deserves a future, makeitsoon.com slash donate. Help me to bring you more amazing sci-fi content. Thanks so much. I truly appreciate it and I couldn't do it without you. Now, where were we? Presumably something deeply weird. Let's find out. If you guys at home want to see the video that Hayden has just watched and had such a visceral effect on him, please check out our Facebook page. We'll be posting a link to that botfly hatching video in the week after this show. I feel like the botfly has had a, a particularly good headline act so far. Let's move it on to something even weirder. And I think this is so weird that we barely found a clear sci-fi analogy for this. This is almost just too crazy for someone to think of. Eleanor, can you tell us what disco snails are? Disco snails are so great. Oh my goodness, they're so great. So uh, they don't start out as disco snails, they start out as a humble normal snail, but then they, they end up eating bird feces, and from the bird feces they can get infected with a worm that crawls inside them and eventually takes over their brain, but also kind of gets into their eye stalks as well. The snail is kind of forced to go somewhere really exposed, so it'll be, be eaten by birds, and at the same time, it's like eye stalks start flashing, and so they're meant to look like caterpillars crawling around the place, and so birds come along and then will eat the snail's eyes which allow the this parasite to complete its incredible life cycle in the belly of the of this bird before then it, it well gets pooed out again and then gets eaten by more snails and the the, the cycle continues so there's yeah it's incredible really incredible what? i know right that is <laughs> pretty, horrifying. pretty awesome for all of these examples it feels just like there must be an easier way to make a living right <laughs> there must be an easier way than going through all this like you have to get infected into someone's body and then you like wriggle around in there then you go to somewhere else it's just like just be a plum just stay at one place you this synthesize it's easier let's grow you'll make more friends absolutely brilliant you heard it here first uh, associate fellow for the labor Home institute for future intelligence be a plum <laughs> sort it out did you have any sci-fi examples that sprung to mind for the disco snails the similar thing might be like seti eels in star trek what do, oh, what do they do they kind of like crawl into your ears and then take control of your mind but in a less cool way than disco snails ah like a really evil babel fish instead mm. of just hanging out and benevolently yeah. translating everyone you meet they actually <laughs> sort of incentivize you to to kill them <laughs> Okay, yeah, well, that's unfortunate. We've gone from alien to blood child, from parasitic wasps to bot flies. I think it's only fair now we talk about Cameron Hurley's 2011 novel, God's War. Basically, it's magic, but with bugs, bug magic. People use pheromones and tasty smells and stimulants of various kinds to control bugs and make them do their bidding for them. Quick pause there, because I'm curious as to what you think 
regular magic is like. I read Harry Potter. <laughs> I don't remember it being predominantly witches and wizards controlling each other with pheromones and smells. I don't think you know enough how magic <laughs> works in Harry Potter to be able to say that with any confidence. <laughs> no, 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 you're right. I shouldn't have called your bug magic credentials into question. Please, please continue. That's right. That's right. I think implicitly you might have just called your own scientific credentials into question, but that's the that. <laughs> <laughs> Eleanor, we've got a, a sci-fi fancy example of bugs being controlled to carry out our bidding, which makes me ask the natural question, as ever, what are DARPA doing? <laughs> yeah, well, questionable things in my opinion. Um, but, uh, interesting, research, <laughs> interesting research seeing about whether or not you can control insects using mechanical jiggery-pokery. I gather that the main idea is to implant electrodes into the larvae and then the larvae develops with these chips in, inside it that then can be used later on in order to control them. So as a little infant, you slipped a cheeky little electric chip and then when you go into an adult, you're like, I feel like someone's controlling my mind and they're like, don't be ridiculous, Frank, you've got a real chip on your shoulder. But then the joke's on them because there's very literally a chip on Frank's shoulder and he's being forced to spy on the Taliban. <laughs> there's a variable future ahead in the world of insect cyborgs but it's yeah. real it's happening DARPA have done this they, they've successfully manipulated moths they keep the moths on a tether which I find weird but they can they can steer living moths by controlling these electrical impulses and they can do the same with beetles controlling the, the muscles directly they implanted electrodes directly into the beetles legs presumably this beetle yeah. is extremely confused because it's just kind of <laughs> got dancing fever as far as it's aware. It definitely reminded me of the Pickle Rick episode of Rick and Morty. <laughs> so Eleanor, we'll go away from DARPA's attempts to control okay. insect movement with implants, because mm. nature's already found a way to do this. Yeah. Can you tell us about zombie viruses? So for example, there's one really cool fungus, which infects ants. Is that the one that went to the party dressed as a mushroom? Because I think I've met that one. That's <laughs> a fun guy. <laughs> okay, I hear it now. I'll... um. I'll cut that. Yeah, you, you cut that because the, the only reaction is going to be crickets. <laughs> Brilliant. For anyone listening at home, tune in next week. We're doing a special on tumbleweeds. So, going back to zombie viruses. Uh, yeah, uh, anyway, so, 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 so yeah, you get a fungus which will infect ants take control of their of their mind and get them to, to crawl up to a nice place where it would be a good place to release fungal spores, at which point then the, the ant then holds on really tightly to whichever branch it's uh, thing, and then it's amazing that the fungus kind of like sprouts out of the ant and into this kind of beautiful little mushroom that so ends the life cycle of the ant. Um, but yeah, really cool. <laughs> you, you described that in a very passive way. Again, it feels like you're sort of legally representing the fungus here, and you're just like, and the ant's life cycle came to a natural end. Nothing to do with my client killing it by growing through its skull. <laughs> well, you know, someone's got to fight for the underdog, right? <laughs> right, yes. The underdog in this situation is so clearly the ant. <laughs> This fungus is a corporate raider. It's a it's a it's a private equity thing that's come in and it's driven this like family business off the rails. That's vision. Hang on, Hayden, did you just lean uh, to, on, onto uh, the model of small-scale capitalism as an easier an analogy for us to understand another living thing's yeah. suffering? <laughs> no, people can't really relate to an ant being, being tortured to death. But what they can get is, is a small family bakery being put financially under strain. Yeah, that's how to make it real. The real enemy is capitalism, as it always has been. <laughs> 
excellent. And for anyone thinking of sponsoring this show, Hayden's views are his own. <laughs> Going back to sci-fi, are there any analogies that we can find for fungal networks behaving in a slightly rogue agent way? I've got one that springs to mind. And I think, Eleanor, I think you're a fan as well. I'm talking Star Trek Discovery. Yes, yes, yes. And I agree. I think it's a good example if we all think you're the same one I am. <laughs> well, I, I, this is like a sort of bizarre episode where the bananas in pajamas have a slightly standoffish attitude to each other. They're like, are you thinking what I'm thinking, B1? You might be, but I'm not going to tell you. I wish you were just more open with me. Pause there for a second, Marcus. Yeah. What yeah, accent yeah. was that? that? What was accent was that? <laughs> <laughs> just uh, where geographically uh, or my my mum is australian on paper oh australian right right yeah. <laughs> great yeah please continue for anyone who didn't grow up with australian cousins and isn't familiar with the bananas in pajamas i urge you to go on youtube and look at a comparison between the original credits that were being used in the 90s and the credits that are used today Honestly, they're like double the speed. And it's sort of like very, very much gives me the vibe that the new generation are being raised on ADHD itself. They've just cut out the middleman of, of <laughs> developing it over time. They just give it to you now uh, on, on TV. Anyway, that's all, that's all by the by. Um, re really, this is me trying to ask Eleanor a question. Thanks for watching in, Hayden. Uh, a question about uh, what happens when a fungus takes over Tilly in Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, yeah, it takes over her mind in a similar way to the fungal ant thing, but in a less tragic way, perhaps. In that she doesn't end up climbing onto the highest point of the Enterprise and her brain blossoming. Yes, no, she doesn't. Uh, well, spoilers. <laughs> Moving on to another hot topic, slave making. It's definitely rife in sci-fi. The first example that springs to mind for me is Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi, where everyone's favourite weird CD slug, Jabba the Hutt, enslaves Princess Leia and puts her in the standard slave outfit, beloved by giant slugs across the galaxy, a human bikini. I suppose a slug bikini would have been weirder, but it would have made more sense. Just thinking about what he has lying around the ship. I mean, Eleanor, does slug bikinis exist? Are there, are there any examples? Sort of like what, what dog owners do at Christmas. Well, well, I have to say, I, I don't know if I should be proud of this or not, but I, I have pet snails, and I can tell you for a fact that there are no costumes for, for, for giant snails on the internet. I have looked, but tragically, they're there or not. You have to make them yourself. So maybe it was just because he didn't have access to slug bikinis. I find it bizarre that there's a world in which lightsabers and flying ships exist in abundance, but slug bikinis was a stretch too far for the manufacturing industry of Jabba's planet. On slug bikinis, Jabba himself has what can only be described as alien moves. He could do with a slug bikini himself. Are you, are you body shaving Jabba the Hutt? I think that's okay. That's, I think that is a, that's a medical description no, of what he has. I, I don't know if we're body shaming him so much as we're just holding him to the same standard he imposes on Leia. <laughs> I, right. I, 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 I think I'd rather see both of them in gold bikinis than expecting Ray Fisher to do the scene in the nude. I don't think that would be reasonable. It's debatable whether the original scene was reasonable. But, uh, anyway, <laughs> we're really digressing. Eleanor, you keep these wonderful pet snails. I just wondered if any of them have invited you to a disco lately. 
sadly not. No? Okay, well, that's good. That means they're healthy. Hayden, are there any sci-fi examples of slave makers that come to mind for you? There are tons and tons of examples, yeah. I think one of my favourite, obviously, with working on artificial intelligence and everything, is the Matrix of the whole of mankind plugged into these machines and quite similar to in Bloodchild, used to fuel the machines themselves. But of course, there's loads and loads more. The Borg in Star Trek would be another classic one. That one does even call the, the head of the Borg the Queen, right? It's very uh, insectoid. Which brings us on neatly to slave makers in the insect world. Eleanor. Yes. I've got a, a pop quiz question for you here. What is the biggest predator of a bumblebee? Well, one of their biggest threats is an incredible mother type of bee called the cuckoo bee. And what she will do is she will kind of, well, she acts a bit like a cuckoo in that she will sneak into a, a hive of, of bumblebees and, well, lay her own eggs there and, and sometimes kill a queen as well, um, which is just incredible. In fact, they, 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 they need to, to kind of use this kind of slave making thing in order to be able to continue their life cycle. Like they can't do it themselves. It's just absolutely incredible. And also, a really interesting thing about that is bumblebees actually do quite well in, in towns. And they reckon that one reason for this is because the, bumble, uh, the, the cuckoo bees can't hear where the bumblebee nests are. So, so they're unable to find their prey. Whoa, we're the good guys. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Don't think about neonicotinoids or whatever they are in those fertilizers that got banned in the EU. No, no, no. We are friends with these because we have double-decker buses that seem to run on diesel so loudly, other bees can't hear the regular bees. We are the good guys. You're welcome, world. <laughs> Hayden, tell us about what, what slavery nastiness happens mm. in Adrian Tchaikovsky's Classic 2015 novel, Children of Time. So yeah, in this novel, they do something called uplifting, which is where you get a ordinary species that kind of minding their own business and you make them much, much more intelligent and smarter and you make them at you know, human level intelligence. And in the novel, they wanted to do it with primates, but maybe they like aimed it wrong or something bad happened. And, and instead, they ended up uplifting spiders, uh, a.k.a. the worst kind of animal you could uplift. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, these these super spiders use their intelligence to control ants for lots of different purposes, you know, to do all their, their work for them using the same kind of pheromones and smell signals that we talked about before. Which you described as bug magic. Bug magic. So this, <laughs> yes. is, this is spider, spider wizards using bug magic. Yeah. <laughs> That sounds great. I mean, uh, sorry, I should have told you before you came on. I am trying to pitch this as a popular science show, but uh, no, you know, again, thank you for your input. It's great. Bug magic and wizard spiders. But okay, so anyone listening from the outside might think, oh no, poor ants in this Children of Time novel. That sounds like they're having a really rough time under those despotic spiders who've enslaved them. But Eleanor, might they be a reason that we should think differently? about ants. Well, ants are wonderful. I'm going to preface this and everyone should love ants. However, one of the wonderful <laughs> things that they do, which is kind of scary, is uh, that you get a whole bunch of ants which specialise in making slaves of other ants, which is crazy. So, so what they do is they will go and they will find another nest, usually of like kind of closely related ants, which kind of make it even more weird. And then they will steal their babies and bring them back to their, their, their nest and raise them as their own and then make them kind of do all the, all the really rubbish jobs. Which is just completely what? crazy. And there's species that specialise in doing this. They don't do this to one off. They specifically need to go get babies from other nests. It's just completely nuts. I've read somewhere that 
this practice in ants of trying to steal and then enslave a generation and rear them yourself might actually die out in the ant world. Why is that? No, no, it won't. Where have you heard this? Oh, wow. Okay. Controversy. <laughs> well, I, I, read, <laughs> I, I, I read that there have been documented cases of the enslaved ants growing yeah. up themselves and then they kill the larvae of their slavers. That is so cool! Yeah, so this this is what I've heard. So apparently th there's a bit of a debate right now as to whether or not this practice will persist because it seems to be 50-50 success rate. That's so interesting. Hey, on the theme of ants, mm -hmm. leaf cutter ants, I think they deserve a look in. Yes. They're pretty cool. Yeah, they're very cool. First of all, they don't eat leaves, which is which people are often surprised by. Okay, who named them? Who named them? <laughs> But they do cut leaves, so I guess it's not entirely entirely false. You you didn't let me finish. Who named them? I want to shake the hand on avoiding a pitfall <laughs> others would have fallen into. Uh, sorry, continue, Eleanor. They don't eat leaves. They, they they gather it to feed a fungus, and then they eat the fungus. And the crazy thing is, when the queen leaves the nest in order to make a new nest, she will carry a little piece of fungus with her in order to start her new little farm, which is just amazing. And apparently, they're, they're meant to be very, very um, sophisticated in the way in which they, they choose which plants they're going to feed this fungus. They have to learn very quickly. You know, if they feed it a bit of this and it kills the fungus, they need to, like, learn and kind of change their behavior. However, having said this, I have also ha had bits of my backpack eaten by these ants. So they're obviously probably that good at testing in the first place, but they, they work it out eventually. So they carry this fungus around in a pouch, mm. like a very weird six-legged kangaroo, but instead of having an adorable <laughs> joey in there, it's the sort of thing that I've heard can hatch through the heads of other ants. I mean, ants seem to have a very hit-or-miss relationship with fungi. I think it's more like a sourdough starter, you know? People carry them mm. around for ages. <laughs> eventually escape oh, into your friend. Your friend no, gives it to you, no, and you're like, oh my god, if I wanted homework, I would have gone back to school. This isn't, I just, give me a loaf of bread. Don't give me, oh. Sorry, I have some hang-ups about sourdough. Ella, have these ants learned anything snazzy to protect mm -hmm. their fungus. It's actually a really cool mechanism. The individuals who collect the fungus are different to the individuals who tend the fungus. And so, yes, they do protect it and they protect it very well, but it's still unclear how they get this information from one part of the, the colony to another part. Ah, well, Eleanor, you've come to the right place because I have the answer <laughs> for you here today. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. It is mm. bug magic. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> True story. True story. <laughs> okay, let's let's leap back to bug science. Have we got any examples from the world of sci-fi that you can think of where bugs <laughs> like to do a little bit of the old farming, like those those their fungus ants? These are not really like horror stories. I'm quite liking leafcutter ants actually. I'm quite liking their kind of pastoral bucolic lifestyle of you know just being simple farmers. Oh. The example that comes to mind for me when I think of aliens doing a bit of farming would be War of the Worlds, where they like to take mm. a bit of human flesh and then turn it into blood, which they use as a fertilizer. That's obviously a far cry from what the ants are doing, but I just do find it, I find it interesting that in real mm. life, ants farm not just fungi, but 
actually other living insects. Eleanor, can you talk us through this? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Some species of ants will keep aphids, a bit like we keep cows. So they'll kind of look after them and they'll protect them from predators. And then they will milk them for a kind of sugary solution called honeydew, which is kind of waste product for, for the aphids. And in fact, they'll, they'll stroke their little antennae down to, to encourage them to, to produce honeydew, which is really adorable. This is all kind of very cute. Ha- and, uh, hang and, on. Uh, hang on. Sorry. Sorry. Go back to that. Just very slightly coquettish little description. What? They, <laughs> they, yeah. they do what? <laughs> they kind of like stroke them in order to, to encourage them to produce more uh, honeydew. Uh, mm. Hayden, just, just going for an outside opinion. What springs to mind? <laughs> no, actually, I'm liking that. That's, that's, that's lovely. Yeah, of course you're liking it, you pervert. Getting nicely stroked. <laughs> yeah, that's... I'm, 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 oh, guys, guys, how would you know? <laughs> That's that's like no, not like that. No, like a nice, uh, like having your hair stroked or something. That's lovely. Do you produce golden dew when your hair stroke, Hayden? <laughs> Only if it, you, you do it very well, Marcus. Only if you do it in the right way. Well, I'm told I do it brilliantly, but that's the beauty of a long-term relationship. People get good at lying. Schmeckles. What a fun word. I mean, just don't yell it at a bar mitzvah, unless Rick Sanchez is the rabbi. Am I right, ladies and gentlemen? (laughs) Hey, you know who could use a few schmeckles? Your favorite sci-fi podcast. This show takes a lot of hard work to research and produce, and it's entirely self-funded. In fact, future episodes won't be possible without the support of listeners like you. So please spread the love and head to makeitsoon.com slash donate. Any schmeckles you can share will go towards creating more awesome sci-fi content. So that's makeitsoon.com slash donate. Thanks for your support, you legend. Now let's get back to the episode. Schmeckles! How do these aphids farm their ants? Uh, so, so the ants farm the, the aphids. Oh, so, so yeah, they- that one. Sorry. <laughs> How do the ants farm the aphids? The hunter becomes the milkmaid. What? Um, yeah, no, hang on. Very confused here. <laughs> Um, yeah, but it gets a bit dark, actually. So as well as it being kind of cute and, like, protecting them from predators, they also, they reckon that they have chemicals that are carried around on the ants' feet, which kind of sedate the aphids to stop them from running away. And that's particularly dark because sometimes the ants will take a little bit of aphid to eat. You Whoa. know, you get after, but then you also get eaten sometimes. It's kind of one of those things. Oh, okay. So very, very much like being an animal hanging out anywhere near a human. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> 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 so they do protect them from things like kind of those parasitoid wasps that we talked about earlier and i think i prefer to be eaten by an ant than eaten by a parasitoid so so really i think you know i don't think they got it too bad to be honest excellent hey listeners at home would you like to be eaten by an ant or a parasitoid wasp <laughs> vote now <laughs> maybe i'll do that actually i'll put a poll up on the facebook page we'll see how would you prefer to go <laughs> now i'm feeling sympathetic for these aphids because they're obviously mm-hmm. zombieing around the place, enslaved to these ants that just smell fantastic, which comes back to, I'm starting <laughs> to understand the bug magic that Hayden was talking about now, because, you know, it's like just getting the right aftershave. It turns out you can enslave an entire subspecies, milk them at whim, and then just eat them. But it's, it's so close to what we do to cows. I'm actually really weirded out by this. This is a very strange analogy. Um, okay, these aphids, do they have any adaptations themselves, Eleanor? Uh, what, to protect themselves from ants? Yeah, protect themselves in general. 
I know that with parasitoid wasps, as well as the bacteria that we talked about, they also try and kick things to protect themselves. What a unique evolutionary <laughs> adaptation. They kick things. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> aphids. <laughs> There's other defenses as well, but I quite like that one because you can like put them in your garden and see them kick me. But anyway, that's just, <laughs> that's just If you at home want to tune in to Eleanor's niche aphid kicking YouTube channel, it will be live streaming soon. <laughs> You'll find a little ring of insectologists throwing $5 bills on the floor as they pass on their aphids to win. Surely it would be like bullfighting, right? If the aphids are cows, it would be little ant matadors Antidores, if you will, but like very dramatic and Spanish. There's a lot of ants watching in the stands and occasionally an aphid really breaks loose and just runs through the entire ant colony. And a few ants, they get what's coming to them. They do have some other answers though they're, okay you get gall aphids and they have a pretty they have a pretty gross defense oh i don't know gross or fabulous it's it's kind of much the same in the insect kingdom but they, <laughs> so, 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 it's <laughs> very much the same in my wardrobe that's what i'm told <laughs> <laughs> well when they're attacked by a predator you get the individuals who are postmenopausal. they'll run forwards and essentially like stick themselves to the attacker and kind of like try and gum them up in order to protect their offspring and their grand offspring despite coming to a sticky end in the process. They get to be like the 300, the heroes of the Gaulafid colony. Okay, so what you're saying is they're absolutely shredded and they've got Glaswegian accents. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Are there any other examples of this insane <laughs> maverick self-sacrifice that we're seeing in the insect world? Any six-legged Sean Beans out there ready to nobly take one for the team? I would say that there are many invertebrates out there that would put Sean Bean to shame with their valiant, heroic efforts. So, for example, you get certain species of ants, going back to ants, they're just brilliant, who will blow themselves up in order to protect their colony. So they have this incredible defense where a part of their abdomen, they can clench it so hard that essentially it causes their whole abdomen to split open and cause goo to splatter all over their enemies, which apparently puts off enemies. Um, there was a new species discovered recently, which it smells like curry when it does it. If, if anyone from DARPA is listening in the uh, cyborg high mem team, uh, that's all <laughs> fake news. Insects don't explode. <laughs> Please don't pursue that further. Let's talk about cockroaches in science fiction and in real life, because there have been some great, some terrible and some utterly bizarre sci-fi stories centred around cockroaches. Why? Well, who knows? I mean, I can only presume it's because they're so damned hard to exterminate, they've haunted more than one author's dreams. Also, they're really cute. And, and, <laughs> because they're really cute. So there you go. I think we're all singing from the same hymn sheet here. Lovely, lovely cockroaches. If you at home have a cockroach, post it on the Facebook group and tag Eleanor. She'd love to know how cute it is. So, Hayden, let's, let's have some sci-fi examples of these cockroaches. Well, one of my favourites is Men in Black 2. The cockroach called Edgar the Bug, who crash lands outside of a farm, fills out this person's skin and then tries to take over the world. I vividly remember the ending. Edgar the Bug's climbing a ladder up to a rocket and Will Smith's standing, stepping on all these cockroaches on the floor. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, was that your cousin? Was that your auntie? You know, they're goading this bug. And the notion that a cockroach would actually be bothered by that I found that kind of funny, but Eleanor, you've been telling us cockroaches have individual differences in real life. 
They do, yeah. Cockroaches do have individual personalities, like woodlice. You get some kind of shy ones and some kind of bold ones. And they're really cool because unlike ants and bees that are all part of this colony and all working together, they all kind of hang out together, but they're not ruled, as it were. So they're a good way of us being able to study things like crowd dynamics and stuff like that. You'll get some individuals who like to stay put right in the middle and then other individuals who like to go for a bit of a wander and then come back and keep exploring and that kind of thing. So if you watch them, you'll see that they have repeatable differences. So yes. They do have personalities. Apparently, there was an experiment in 2006 where we created these robotic cockroaches, coated them in pheromones, and were able to trick other cockroaches into responding to their behaviour as we wanted. As I'm saying this aloud, I'm suddenly thinking, am I a real cockroach? And everyone around me is a robot cockroach, and they smell so damn good, I'm just doing whatever they tell me to do. Now I'm tripping balls. Uh, Hayden, how are you feeling? Well, I've got a question for Anna. How does a cockroach smell? I've never studied smell perception in cockroaches, but I have done it in woodlice, and they do it through their antennae. Their antennae has oh. chemoreceptors on the end, which they pat around the place in order to see what's going on. So I'm not 100% sure with cockroaches, but I can reckon it's probably the same or a similar mechanism. Mm. Fun fact about woodlice, they have actually got two sets of antennae, one on the top of their heads and one underneath, because sometimes they get their big antennas broken off, and so they need to have a spare set just in case. Just in case a rogue ant tries to milk them. Mm. <laughs> yeah, They're I'm getting bits. a real picture of what a sordid world this insect community is. <laughs> Eleanor, are there any other examples where we've created robotic insects and been able to influence real insects with them? So first of all, bees communicate via dancing. Yep. So they perform something called a waggle dance, which they tell other bees where to go to find foraging. And so a lab built a dancing robot bee in order to perform a waggle dance. And they found that this robot bee was quite good at telling the bees to go out and forage, but the bees then got a bit confused because they couldn't work out what direction the robot was telling them to go. So, so kind of partially successful. So I came across a guy who created a mechanical robot. This is weird. He's not created a robotic insect. Mm. He's not created a robotic insect to influence other insects. He's created a robot that is controlled by an insect. I'm trying to think of a sci-fi analogy <laughs> as bonkers as this, and I'm coming up short. Um, if anyone could think of one at home, please, please post it and share it, because I, I would love to know if we've dreamt up this insanity anywhere else. But a guy called Garnet Hertz, he created a mechanical robot which is rigged up to correspond directly to the movements of a real living Madagascar cockroach. Now, the roach was put on a ping pong ball and the roach stays in one place and moves around like it's on a multi-directional treadmill. And all the movements it does are copied by this pretty large robot several meters away from it. <laughs> and when the robot is moving around this room, because obviously you've just got a cockroach I can see about 20 millimeters in front of it, just paddling on this ping pong ball and a robot's just rolling around this huge room, which is completely no relation to what the cockroach can see. So likelihood is the robot's going to hit something. So when the robot's approaching something, this is really clever. They, they had the little cockroaches ping pong ball, ball surrounded by LEDs and the LEDs would light up. If you imagine the, the numbers on a clock face, they would light up at like, if the robot's about to hit something that's at one o'clock, the light at one o'clock would brighten and the cockroach, which is naturally light averse, would move away to avoid it and thus steer this robot by proxy. So in 2004, we had a guy who had managed to get a cockroach to drive a robotic car without even knowing it. Now, I don't know why he did that, but I, I love that he did and I find it utterly, utterly nuts. Hayden, do you have any insights as to why this matters? I would say th this reminds me of a lot of sci-fi. Like what he's done is a, a classic Mishnamek suit. 
He's made a suit, like a, a mechanical suit of armor for this insect. From Pacific Rim to that episode of Rick and Morty where they put the dog in the robot suit. <laughs> it's a classic. He just made a mech suit for the, the insects. Why not <laughs> yeah. over the world? You know, why not help them in what is surely their sole task? Just out of curiosity, was the bug on the top of this robot or was they in like a separate lab? No, no, no. Com- completely separate. That's the crazy thing. So this bug has absolutely no idea what's going on. It doesn't know it's controlling a robot. And I I find that even stranger. Wait, Marcus, what you're implying there is that it would know it's controlling the robot if it was in the same room and it would would Uh, feel like somehow conflicted about its responsibilities. Yeah, it'd be like, well, I did have a couple of drinks before, guys, so I'm not sure I should be doing this today. I'm all right, I'm all right. I've got a heavy goods license. I'm fine. Um, uh, so, Hayden, have we got any design inspirations or indeed aspirations in sci-fi or real life that come from the world of bugs? Yeah, lots and lots of examples, either based on or taking inspiration from uh, insects. So it's called like biomimicry. Can we have a tiny little robot bee that can go around and pollinate our crops in case all of the natural pollinators go extinct? I feel like there was a Black Mirror episode on exactly mm. that theme. Yeah, and it definitely shows some of the problems you might have if you create the technology to be able to control swarms of tiny robots. So there's currently negotiations going on at the United Nations to ban lethal autonomous weapons, right? These are like robots that could kill on themselves. Mm. One of the campaign groups released this video called Slaughterbots. This small group opens this truck and out pour thousands and thousands of tiny little drones with a little explosive device on it that go straight for someone's face and blow up. So yeah, I mean, there is definitely downsides from uh, advancing technology in this area. Wow. I'm not sure I'm going to post that video, but if other people want to check it out, (laughs) do. Because it's obviously a, a salient warning. for what's in store for us. Eleanor, do you have any thoughts on pros and cons of mimicking insect design? Yeah, well, the bots sound pretty exciting, but I I reckon it might be a bit easier just to kind of breed more bees, but maybe that's just me. I'm a bit biased. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. We can eliminate the need for anything natural actually doing what it's supposed to do. Let's just build one out of ideally single-use plastic. That's what we want. A fleet of bees made out of plastic bags that can strangle dolphins when they've met a daisy. Sorry, as you can tell, I do watch Black Mirror. <laughs> Please carry on. Pros and cons of insect designs. There are also lots of nice things that we can get from insects. For example, earwigs. They've got these two tiny nubs on their back, but they actually fold out into these absolutely incredible huge wings and a surface area that's 10 times the size of the surface area when they're folded on their back. People have been able to use inspiration from the way in which they fold these in order to design devices that'll kind of like pop up. Mm. So you can get some nice origami-esque things. So what you're saying is that the gift from the bug world to us has been Ikea. (laughs) Hayden, I think you came across something that the University of Washington's been up to lately. Yeah, so they have invented these two small flying creatures and their first one was a robo-bee and that was plugged in, like a phone that's plugged into the wall. But their new one is completely wireless. They fire a a laser beam at the bee and there's a tiny little photovoltaic solar cell on it that converts the power and flaps its little wings. I bet anyone who bought the tethered version is feeling pretty stupid now. It's like, should have waited another year, man. The wireless one's come out already. 
We touched on Star Trek Discovery when we were talking about fungi invading Tilly's brain. I think the series Discovery has another favourite bug, doesn't it? Go on, Eleanor. Tardigrades. They are very, very cool. Some species of them are able to survive pressures of up to six times that of the deepest ocean on the planet. And also, they took some of these up to space and they found that they were able to survive low Earth orbit. I think they tested them for like about 10 days or something completely ridiculous. And they're able to survive. And also, their nickname is a moss piglet. They do look like a piglet with six legs. Yeah, so I've heard various translations of tardigrade. I've heard them called water bears as well, which I struggle with that one because I've seen (laughs) bears and in the film The Revenant, if they swapped the bear attacking Leonardo DiCaprio for a tardigrade, I think people would freak out. They're just really cool. And just the fact that they can survive such extreme environments, you know, they're probably one of the most like extreme invertebrates on the planet. If anyone wants sort of a perspective on what it is to be able to withstand as a living organism, the pressure six times out of the deepest ocean, Watch the James Cameron documentary where he goes down to the bottom of the Pacific Trench. I think it's the Mariana Trench. And the strains that the submersible vehicle is put under. He himself says several times, oh, if this thing fails, I will be crushed to the size of a can of Spam in about half a second. (laughs) You're like, okay, that's pretty deep. That's a lot of pressure. So you've got a tardigrade, which is absolutely microscopic, and it's surviving six times that pressure. Not only that... But it can survive in space. Yeah. I feel like we're almost inured to how impressive that is because we've grown up as a generation of kind of like, yeah, people are in space. <laughs> we see space all the time. You go to space, you're in a spaceship, you're in a spacesuit. This thing is outside, it's on the outside of the spacesuit. Now, imagine taking a transatlantic flight and they're like, oh, sorry, there's been a mix up with your ticket. You're going to have to sit on the wing. You'd be like, no, I can't do that. This thing's, it's in space. That's crazy. Eleanor, why is space such a hostile environment? And why is it so amazing an organism can survive there? It's all to do with the incredible rays from the sun that would completely mash up your DNA in a very short period of time. Whereas in tardigrades, they have the these amazing proteins that repair DNA to the extent that is just absolutely mind-boggling and allows them to live in all these amazing environments. So we found a protein yeah. that can suppress the damage done by ionizing radiation. It can suppress the likelihood of you developing cancer. Are we now trying to synthesize that for humans? Yeah, well, there was a study that was done a few years ago in which they were trying to put some of the tardigrade genome into human cells and they managed to show that these cells that contained tardigrade grade DNA were able to reduce damage which was caused by x-rays which is really cool but unfortunately there's a big jump between putting a few of these cells into a human cell and then putting that into a person. I heard your eyes start doing a disco and then a bird eats you (laughs) (laughs) so you've got to be careful. (laughs) Eleanor are there other examples where we're using research on bugs to advance healthcare or transport? In humans? Yes. Because that, I mean, that's a crazy one where we've, we've got something that like Star Trek Discovery, if anyone watches the series, they're, they're kind of, it's cute. They're super obsessed with tardigrades. <laughs> they they play a needlessly big role in the whole series, <laughs> like especially season one. It's, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Clearly there was someone on the script writing team who had just been like browsing the new scientist and was like, oh my God. Uh, it was just like, I have to build a series around this. So they, they really went ham on it. But it's, it, it's actually kind of crazy to now think, well, actually that's sort of fair enough because we are using the genes from these creatures to try and cure cancer now. So fair play. Um, So is there anything else we're trying to do that with, Eleanor? So many different things. Scorpion venom. They've recently found that 
certain protein in scorpion venom is able to cross the blood-brain barrier into the brain. Now, I, I don't know much about venom, but that sounds pretty spot on. If I was a venom, <laughs> I reckon crossing the blood-brain barrier is probably something I'd want to do. But they've managed to found that they can use this peptide in order to shuttle drugs into the brain, which is usually a really difficult thing to do. So that's just kind of one way in which we're using bugs to help humans. I'm yeah. presuming they found a way of making the venom inert. Maybe the paper was published posthumously. <laughs> How about ants? I feel like they are a pretty strong go-to for these things. Definitely, they're a strong go-to. Ants are very smart in that they often try and work out the most efficient way in which they can go and um, kind of gather food and bring it back to the, the nest. And decisions about where they put nests and, you know, sometimes you get nests that kind of bud off but still work together. And all these kind of things are also issues in the way that we transport resources. So there's quite a lot of interesting mathematical models that inform our transport networks, which initially some of the maths came from inspiration from Ants. Oh, wow. So the algorithms and things powering Transport for London, like the Tube Network, or when we're looking into autonomous vehicles, how we'll manage the swarm requirements there. That came from real-life observational maths in ant colonies. I wouldn't say it's directly. So your tube is not directly based on, on the workings of ants. Loosely, they're kind of connected. Okay, but if I dress as an ant while riding the circle and district line... Could we make that claim? I think that you should definitely be encouraged to dress up as an ant. <laughs> <laughs> but you told us earlier that it's so hard to get these kinds of costumes. <laughs> you just can't find. I think actually I'm just going to have to wear the gold bikini. Uh, yeah. I think that's, that's the that's, only, the only that's option. Looks. Talking about the underground, it reminds me of in Ants, where all the ants kind of get on the back of a worm and use it like a, a subway. What? <laughs> Whichever show this was, this sounds great. Yeah. Oh, okay, wait, sorry. I missed the bit where you said it was a show. Yeah. I was just waiting for like Eleanor to be like, yes, it's this incredible species. And he's like, no, no, that one's fully made up. That was a cartoon, Ant yeah. Ants do not ride worms. It's a bizarre cartoon called Ants. Yeah. With a Z on the end. Of course. Where Woody Allen is a depressed ant, not sure of his place in society. How prescient. <laughs> you could be forgiven listening to this episode for, for thinking that an ant riding a worm is real, given that ants <laughs> literally farm and milk and then eat aphids, <laughs> and indeed farm fungi, and indeed enslave other ants. They do some weird things. <laughs> we can't talk, really. No. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I think we are nearing the end of the show. Is there anything else anyone else wants to discuss in any way? What about the one that I was just talking about earlier, Starship Troopers, where it's kill them, kill them all, and they're fighting these arachnids. Are there any similarities between that film and, and real life? That's weird, though, because the arachnids and Starship Troopers, they have like a caste system. Mm. Not like the massively racist thing Gandhi was advocating against in India, but sort of like a hierarchy, a social structure that you see in ant colonies. There's some pretty crazy thing about the caste systems that you have in ants, because even within the castes, you, you have certain variation. One of my favourite types of ants is there's a species called a turtle ants, and certain workers within the colony have these flat bits on their heads which essentially they act like a door right okay but there's a lot of variation in size so what they will do is they will choose a place for them to live in and they say oh this is great okay here's the right size and then they will find an ant with the right sized head to act as a door to this particular colony which no is, yeah, how crazy is that it's so great no there's ants whose job is to be a door yeah it's really cool
All the other ants, like, crawl under them. No, 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 no. They go there, and the ants, like, password. <laughs> and then they're just like, oh, I don't know, Fever City. They're like, no, nah, mate, your name's not on the list. You're not coming in. <laughs> All of the worker ants are female. So you've got a queen, and really it's a cool kind of feminist society. You get some males that emerge in order to breed, and then they live a very short life and then, then die. Um, whereas actually, all of the hard work is done by females. It's the same with bees as well. It's the same with humankind. <laughs> <laughs> Eleanor Drinkwater, Hayden Belfield, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. I- I've absolutely loved it. It's been, it's definitely been one of the most bonkers ones we've done. <laughs> absolutely nuts. Really, really enjoyed it. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having us. Uh, Hayden, have you changed your perspective of bugs? I think you have. I no longer want to kill all of them, just most of them. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely brilliant well guys thank you so much again Uh, to everyone listening at home thank you so much for joining us if you've enjoyed this week's show please be sure to subscribe to the Make It Soon podcast and please leave us a review on whatever platform you're using thank you for listening and thank you again to our amazing guests Eleanor and Hayden you guys have been brilliant and we will catch you next time That is a wrap. Guys, that was heaps of fun. Thank you so much. Oh, that was brilliant. I've learned so much. This is very cool. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my God. Eleanor, you've just stuffed our brains with facts. It's been fantastic. With creepy... Uh, you've injected it into our skin. And it's going to burst out of me. In, in, in conversations from now on. It's going to Next time you're at... Of me talking about it. <laughs>